Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. Christ is risen indeed. What a glorious morning. What a celebration. This is the best day for believers. This is the day I look forward to. I love Christmas. You guys know I love Christmas. But Christmas, apart from Good Friday, is a very weird story. Just a strange woman has a baby, claims had a baby as a virgin. Strange story. But Christmas and Good Friday without Easter is a supremely sad story. A man with a mission dies before he's ever able to see it to completion. That's why Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Sunday makes up the greatest story, the greatest news, the greatest historical fact in all of human history. And that's what we get to look at this morning. We get the privilege of looking, and we've really spent the last three months getting ready for this morning. We've been looking at the Gospel of John. We've been seeing uh, Jesus tracing his life from the upper room all the way down through the upper room discourse, all the way down to this moment. He was tried. He was betrayed. He was placed into the hands of sinful men. He was tried. He was convicted. Six trials brought him to a place where he was convicted as a common criminal. He was led away at 9 o'clock on Friday morning. He was crucified. At noon, the sky went dark as God's wrath was placed upon Jesus. And at 3 o'clock, he died. He died. When we come to the resurrection, we have to define why Easter is such an enormous celebration. We have to define it. And John's going to do that for us this morning. He's going to give us three... Um, uh, uh, understandings of what the resurrection means for us. We're going to see three aspects of the resurrection. Number one, the reason for the resurrection. Number two, the reality of the resurrection. And number three, the response to the resurrection. So we have to have the reason for it, the reality of it, and the response to it. So John chapter 20, verse 1. Let's read these verses together, and then I will pray, ask God's blessing on our time as we dive in together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came ahead to the tomb first. And stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Father, we come to celebrate our risen Savior. And we have been set up for this day through our study of the Gospel of John. God, thank you for this amazing book. Thank you for the months that we've been able to spend diving in very deeply to every moment of these last couple days of Jesus' earthly life before his resurrection. 
And so, Father, I ask that you would be pleased for your spirit, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this book. I pray for any in this room that wonders about the the historical evidence of the resurrection. God, I pray this morning they would be encouraged that this is a fact. This is a fact of human history. There's there's no doubting this. You can't possibly um, throw this away and remove it from history. It is true. God, I pray that you would enable us to see the glory of what took place and respond the way that Peter and John responded in faith, seeing the evidence and saying that it absolutely demands a verdict of us today. So God, we, we want to love Jesus more. We want to see him clearly. We want to love him more. But we know that what we desire is impossible on our own. We need your spirit to do what we're asking. We are asking impossible things. And we ask that you would accomplish those things. With man, it's impossible. With God, everything is possible. So please create in us greater affections for Jesus. Create in us saving faith. Create in us sanctifying faith. Create in us a greater love for Jesus that would transform everything in our lives. This changes everything. Help us to see that this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. John chapter 20 gives us a reason for Easter, reality of Easter, and the response to Easter. Before we dive into chapter 20, we have to look at the reason for Easter. There's a premise of our celebration. Something had to take place before something else occurred. Something took place before the resurrection occurred. And the premise, the reason for Easter is very clearly Jesus died an actual indisputable death. He died an actual indisputable death. This is the reason why the resurrection had to happen because Jesus actually died. We've looked over the last few months at at the death of Jesus in great detail. But just by way of review, the premise of Easter, the reason that Easter had to happen is because our Savior died an actual indisputable death. How do we know that? Well, number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. He died by crucifixion. He didn't die by stoning, where you could take them just kind of in a back alley, and it could be botched, right? People survived stoning. We see that in Acts. Paul survives stoning. So it could be botched. It might not work. Crucifixion, there's no way that this doesn't work. This kills its prisoners. As my professor used to say, crucifixion was designed to make sure that criminals weren't just dead, that they were good and dead. You need to make sure that they are good and dead. It was public. Thousands of people would have seen Jesus. Thousands of people would have seen. It was right on the main entrance to a city. In this case, it was Jerusalem. It was cruel. It was lingering. So thousands of people would watch over the course of days as these prisoners would be hanging on a cross, as these criminals would be there dying a terrible death. It was cruel. It was lingering. It was verifiable. Remember, Josephus told us that the squad of soldiers would be crucified themselves if there was any last vestige of life in that body. That body needed to be good and dead before they take it off the cross because if there's any last little breath inside of their lungs that comes out when they're off of the cross, those soldiers, those Roman soldiers in charge of crucifying that criminal would then be crucified themselves. There's no way that Jesus survived this death. 
We saw this a couple weeks ago where Jesus did not have to have his legs broken because he was already dead. But because he died so quickly, the guards wanted to make sure. So he dies before he needs his legs broken to kill him. But he dies so quickly that the soldiers thrust the spear into his side. Blood and water come out. The heart had already stopped beating. Fluids had not been moving. He he didn't faint. Or in the popular uh, explanation of the resurrection in the 1800s, a German rationalist um, purported that he swooned. It's the swoon theory. He just fainted on the cross. And they took him down, they wrapped him up, they buried him, and then he came to life. He revived. He didn't truly rise from the dead, but he just revived from his fainting spell. Is that possible? First of all, no, because of everything that we've studied about crucifixion. He died an indisputable, undeniable death. But for the sake of imagination, and it is just that, it's imagination. It's insanely impossible that anybody would have survived crucifixion. But let's just say... Let's suspend reality and say that he did faint. We still have a lot of problems. We have a lot of problems. Let's go through three of them. Number one, Joseph and Nicodemus come and take the body of Jesus off the cross. We saw this in verses 38 through 42. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are going to take the body off the cross. And you better believe that when they take the body off, they are going to check the pulse. They're going to check and see if there's any life left in him. And if there is, they're going to nurse him back to health. They're going to run away with his body and nurse him back to health. But they don't do that. In fact, number two, they do the exact opposite. They start wrapping his body in linen wrappings and putting spices in those linen wrappings. About 75 to 100 pounds of spices interspersed throughout the linen wrappings. So if Jesus had, again, insanely impossible, but if he had survived the cross, he would have died when being wrapped in this 75 to 100 pounds of spices, linens, and goop. It was a goopy, spicy paste that they placed inside of these linens. So you'd wrap, you'd put the goop, you'd wrap, you'd put the goop, you'd wrap, you'd put the goop. About five to seven times you'd wrap and put the goopy paste on them. 75 to 100 pounds, he would have suffocated. There is simply no way that anyone could ever have survived crucifixion. And if they had, there is simply no way that anyone could have survived this burial. Finally, number three, Joseph entombs Jesus. Why would he do this if Jesus was not dead? A burial confirms the reality of death. It's like a period at the end of a sentence. He is dead. We looked at this last week. It is so imperative that we realize Jesus was buried. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the gospel? Paul tells us what the gospel is. Verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul includes in a gospel presentation, he died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. Why? Well, we have biographical data on both men who are doing the burying. This is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. You can go talk to Joseph. He's one of the Sanhedrin, so very public figure. You can talk to him and ask him, where's your tomb? What's your tomb? It was a tomb that had never been used before. So this isn't just some uh, normal, regular tomb. This is a, a tomb fit for a king that had never been used, a beautiful tomb. 
It's not in the ground. John's going to stoop into the tomb and walk into the tomb, not look down into the tomb and, and jump into the tomb. This is in a cave, in a, in a rock formation that would have been carved into this cave, carved into this rock, make a little cave for a tomb. Plus, listen to all of the other people who knew where this tomb was. The Bible tells us not only Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, also Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, a woman named Joanna, and John. You say, well, but those are all disciples. Those are all Christians. Those are all believers in Jesus as Messiah. So they're going to be the ones that say, well, we know where the tomb is, and they're going to lead people astray. Well, we also have Pilate, a centurion, at least 16 Roman soldiers that are going to guard the tomb, the Jewish leaders, including at least Caiaphas, but potentially even the entire Sanhedrin. So to say, well, maybe they got the wrong tomb. That's another theory. Maybe they got the wrong tomb. At least 27 people, potentially 95, if you include every member of the Sanhedrin, knew where this tomb was. 27 to about 95 people knew where this tomb was. So there's no way you're getting the wrong tomb. And it's not just 27 to 95 of Jesus' followers. It's 27 to 95 people of Jesus' followers, yes, but also people that hated Jesus, that crucified Jesus, that wanted him dead. So the reason for Easter, the reason for the resurrection is that Jesus died an indisputable death. He was buried in an indisputable, verifiable tomb, which leads to everything else that will occur. That's the backdrop. That's the premise. That's the foundation. He is dead. That's what we've studied leading up to this point. Now, chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, the Jews numbered their days. They numbered their days. The seventh day was Sabbath, so the first day, starting over again, is Sunday. This is Sunday. This is a true day. And John's going to give us the reality of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb. While it's still dark, and she sees that the stone has already been taken away from the tomb. She comes early on the first day of the week. It seems like in the hurry that they had to get everything prepared and finished before Sabbath, it seems like they didn't feel like they were able to do an adequate job of preparing Jesus for burial. They did enough, they did a little bit, but they weren't able to do everything that they wanted to do. And so they put him in the tomb, the sun goes down Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and they wait, and they're going to go back after Sabbath is over, over so that they can go finish this job. Mary Magdalene comes early. Now, if John wanted to make up this story, if he knew Jesus died, but he wasn't raised from the dead, he's still in a tomb somewhere, or we stole his body, if he wanted to make this up for Jewish readers to hear, to read, and to believe, this would be the most ridiculous thing to do to put Mary Magdalene as the first eyewitness that's going to go to the tomb. Why? Because in that context, in that culture, women were not looked upon very favorably. In fact, if you are going to try and have a woman give an account, a testimony as a witness in court, in Jewish culture, her voice didn't even hold up. She doesn't even count. A woman doesn't even count as legal testimony, as an eyewitness. So why would you include a woman first 
believe this woman, hear this woman. She gives testimony and evidence that the, the resurrection is true. It's real. It would have been dismissed. So if John's wanting to make up the story for us to believe a false story, that's a very bad way to begin. She comes while it's still dark. She sees that the stone is already taken away from the tomb. And she runs away, verse 2. And she comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And she said to them, listen to what she says. Does she say, he's risen from the dead? It's just like he said. He's been raised from the dead. Is that what she says? She doesn't believe in the resurrection. The stone is rolled away. The body is gone. Therefore, what does she say? They took his body. They took his body. She says, verse 2, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. They. Is this the Romans? Is this the Jews? Who's the they? Well, it honestly doesn't even matter. What matters is that she does not say, We have taken away the body. She does not say, Somebody from our group it was a plan, and our plan has succeeded. We rolled away the stone. We brought the body out. We've taken the body, and we've hid him somewhere. She says, they have done this. Somebody other than us. Another theory is that the disciples stole the body. Well, that doesn't fit with what Mary's going to say, and it really doesn't fit with what's going to come later. What's the disciples' response? Verse 3. Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I love how John, as he's telling us of the most significant event in all of human history, says, you know what, I'm going to throw in there that I'm faster than Peter. Just, I have an opportunity here, and I'm going to say I'm faster than him. And not just once. He says it there in verse 4, and then he's going to say it in verse 8. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb and also entered, he saw and he believed. So, I, I'm faster. John's faster. Yeah, but I, Peter has him because Peter's more courageous. John shows up and says, I don't want to go in. And Peter actually walks in. That's so Peter, right? Why does John not go in? He's a little timid. Not quite sure of what's happening. He's trying to figure these things out. Wait, who, who rolled the stone away? How's that possible? Where's the, where's the body? What's, what's happening? And Peter, typical Peter, just runs in. And what does he see? Verse 6. Verse 5. Uh, John sees, stooping and looking in, he sees linen wrappings lying there, but he doesn't go in. And Simon does the same thing. He sees those, but he goes in, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Do you remember the last time that we read in John's gospel of a body that was wrapped in linen wrappings? It's John 11. It's Lazarus. This is an intentional contrast with Lazarus. Why? Remember, Lazarus is raised from the dead too, right? He's raised from the dead. He doesn't raise himself from the dead, but he's raised by God's power from the dead. But when he comes out of the tomb, what does he look like? He's still bound in those linen wrappings. In fact, remember what Jesus says. Take the wrappings off of his face or we're going to have to do this whole thing again, right? You just make sure he doesn't die again. This is an intentional contrast with Lazarus. Lazarus came forth bound with the linen cloths and the face cloth. Why? Because his body was going to die again. His body was still mortal. 
poor Lazarus is raised from the dead knowing, I got to do it again. I have to die again. But Jesus's linen cloths are not like this. His body is not mortal. It's glorified. It's immortal. His body goes through the linen cloths. It also, in verse 26, as we'll get to in a couple weeks, goes through locked doors. But it's not a ghost. You think, well, that's a ghost. Goes through doors. But it's not a ghost because he's able to be touched. He's able to eat. His body's the same as his body was in life, but it's not the same. It's a glorified body. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the body that you will receive. This is the glorified body you'll receive. You'll be able to go through walls, but still eat food and be touched. You'll be like a ghost, but you're not a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Peter sees these linen wrappings just lying there in the same way that they had been when they laid Jesus' body down. Verse 8, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For, verse 9, Because as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. John's telling us his own testimony. I did not believe when Jesus told me he was going to die and rise from the dead. I didn't believe his words. But I saw something. I saw something that cannot be explained. And I I went through in my mind and went, how could this be possible? A stone has been rolled away. Guards are gone. Body's gone. We didn't take it. He truly died. How... He sees and he believes. He lets the evidence place him in a, in a place of belief. He, he's brought to a place where he goes, add all these things up. He's not here. He has to be alive somewhere. But notice he says he gained that from the evidence, not from the words that had been said earlier. Those words take a long time to cement. This is just a beautiful picture of what ministry looks like. John is a disciple of Jesus for three and a half years, and he's been hearing, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again from the dead, go and meet me in Galilee. But he doesn't believe. If he didn't believe when Jesus was his discipler, I think we need to be very patient with one another when we say, hey, here's what the Word of God says, why aren't you doing this? Somebody says, I'm struggling with it. It's, it's, just, it's difficult for me to get my head around it. Well, it was difficult for John to be patient. The Spirit of God will confirm these things and will work. He who began the good work in you will complete it. But John sees, and as he's looking, he saw, end of verse 8, and believed. He saw and believed. He sees and he believes. What does he see? Let's go through the evidence for the reality of the resurrection. Number one, the stone has been rolled away. In the Synoptic Gospels, we find the women, as they're walking to the tomb, they say to one another, uh, has anybody thought about how we're going to open the tomb? Like, we have all the spices because we didn't do an adequate job preparing for burial. Has anybody thought about how we're opening this tomb? There's a big stone there, and we don't know how that's going to be opened. John looks and he goes, somebody open this. And we know who. It's an angel. I love the description of what the angel does. He rolls it away, and then what does he do? He sits on it. 
It's like he wrestled this thing and look, I won. That's what you do, right? If my son wants to prove to my other son, I beat you in a wrestling match, you sit on them. And once you sit on them, you have won. You've won the wrestling match. This angel has won. But it's very interesting the way he sits on this stone. It's been rolled away and sat upon. So the stone, if you picture a stone rolled away this way, the stone was not thrown down and kind of like a little disc, like a pizza, smushed over. The stone has been rolled away and the angel sat. Why is that imperative to know? Because the Roman seal can still be seen. The angel sitting on this stone, that a Roman seal had been placed upon this stone, a wax seal, don't anybody touch this tomb because this tomb is a property of Rome. If you touch this tomb, you'll be messed with. You'll be uh, maybe crucified, but you'll definitely be thrown into prison. Don't touch this tomb. So the angel says, look, I'll roll the the stone away in such a way that you can still see that seal. Because I'm sure John's going, wait a second. Stone rolled away. Oh, I know. I'm at the wrong tomb. Seal. No, that's the right tomb. No, it can't be. Guards. Well, this is the right. Okay. There's, it's, am I at the, he's just, what happened? The stone is rolled away. Second, a 16-man security unit of Roman guards were there to seal up the tomb. They sealed it with a wax seal, and then they guard the tomb. Some people say, well, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. No, they, they see the seal. They see the angel. They see uh, the Roman soldiers have fled. Maybe they all got it wrong. Well, you'd have to say the disciples got it wrong, the Jewish leaders got it wrong, the Roman guards got it wrong, Joseph, Nicodemus, the angel, the angel who had the assignment from eternity past, whoops, went to the wrong tomb. Just open this up, somewhere in another tomb, somebody's saying, hey, it's wrong over here. No. What about the linen wrappings? John's going, okay, stones rolled away. This is the tomb. Guards sealed this one. This is the one. What about the linen wrappings? Wait, maybe we stole the body. Maybe the, the disciples stole the body, but time out. The linen wrappings are so important because if you're going to steal a body with a, a Roman guard placed in front of this body, how are you going to steal this body? You're just going to pick it up and bolt. The linen wrappings won't be there. And if, for some weird reason, you want to get the linen wrappings off, you're not going to slowly unwrap them and then slowly place them back in and then take the body away. If you're going to steal the body, you're just going to take it, linen wrappings and all. But if you want to unwrap it, you're going to rip all the strips off and then take the body. They'd be, they'd be all over the place. But they're not. They're neatly there. It's like a, like a balloon. All the air has gone out and it's just sitting there, but you can see its shape. John sees all of this, and that's why at the end of verse 8, he sees and he believes. He sees the evidence and he, he goes, okay, open tomb, Stone rolled away. Guards here. This is the right tomb. I'm at the right tomb. Linen wrappings are still... So there's no other explanation. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He was truly dead. I'm not at the wrong tomb. The disciples didn't seal the body because I wasn't in on this plan and nobody else was. The body's gone. You realize nobody ever denied that the body was gone? The Jewish leaders wish that they could produce a body, but they couldn't. Remember what they did. We just had Brian read it this morning in Matthew 28. They look and they say, body's gone. They go, they look at the tomb, they make sure, did you get the right tomb? Is this the right place? There's no body. 
they do not say, look, here's his body. He's clearly dead because here he is. They say, you know what? Um, let's pay the Roman guards. And listen to what they pay the Roman guards to say. Do you remember? Tell everybody that while you were sleeping, the disciples came and they stole the body away. There's a whole host of things that are wrong with that statement. Number one is, how do you know what happened while you were asleep? That's the first thing. If I have a Roman guard say to me, I ask them, hey, what, what happened? Well, I was asleep, and this is what happened while I was sleeping. I'd say, how do you know? How do you know what happened while you were asleep? But secondly, how are we going to roll the stone away? How does that happen? Um, linen wrappings, why are they there if the disciples stole the body? Why aren't they just all over the place, or why aren't they gone? Roman soldiers, you're going to be in big trouble for saying that you failed to do your job. And by the way, you're telling me that the disciples who fled in the Garden of Gethsemane while their master was still alive and had just healed somebody, by the way. You remember what happened in John. He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. I am. Twice they fall back. This man's still incredibly powerful and in control. And then Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. He, he, it's not like this man is losing his power. He's in complete control, and they run away. They flee. So you're telling me now that Jesus is dead and powerless in their minds, that they're going to have the courage to go and steal his body for what purpose? They were afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane, but now they're going to have the courage to overpower 16 Roman guards at the tomb. No, they're not. They're not. So John sees, and all of these things are going through his mind, and he's saying, there's no way to explain this. What, what do we do with this? How do we process this? And he comes to the conclusion that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And please note, there's a false gospel that has traveled around for centuries, uh, millennia, in fact, that says that Jesus did not rise from the dead bodily, physically, he just rose in, in the hearts of the people who loved him. He's really dead somewhere, but he's alive in our spirits, in our conscience, in our, our understanding. And, and his teaching lives on forever, even though he's dead. That does not fit with the Gospels. He died and he rose from the dead physically, bodily. Jesus is alive. So, verse 10, the disciples go away to their homes. Mary Magdalene is going to stay. Verse 11, she stands outside the tomb. She weeps. She's looking in. So she was there first, then she went away, then she came back. She's weeping. She's just weeping throughout this whole thing. She sees these two angels in white, sitting at the head, sitting at the feet, where the body of Jesus was. The synoptics tell us one's over at the tomb, at the, uh, sitting on the stone. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, because they have taken away my Lord. She doesn't get it either. She still doesn't believe. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? She thinks he's the gardener, so he doesn't have this, you know, shining, shimmering glory cloud around him. And she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've placed him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus speaks to her, Mary. And she turns and she says, Rabboni, my, my teacher, she believes. Chapter down to verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and, and all that he had said to her. 
We're going to look at that passage in depth next week. But Mary struggled. John struggled. Peter struggled. They're trying to figure this out. And then John finally says, there's no other way to explain this. The premise, the reason for Easter is that Jesus died an indisputable, verifiable death. The reality of Easter is that his body is gone and there's no way to explain it away other than what the Bible clearly says, he rose from the dead. So thirdly, what's our response? It demands a response. The evidence that compelled a historical response compels a contemporary response today. What's that response? You, you cannot just do away with Jesus. You have to either accept him for who he is and what he says happened, or you have to reject him because you don't want to believe it, but it's true. The response is, he is to be believed. He's to be embraced. He's to be cherished. He's to be followed. He's perfectly paid the penalty for sin. He has shattered the power of the grave. He's conquered sin's most powerful consequences. He's conquered the wrath of God in full, and he's conquered eternal death. We cannot be indifferent to this. this the, the reality of Easter means we're compelled to respond with no indifference whatsoever. You cannot be indifferent to this reality. Can I just, can I ask you, just honestly, how do you intend to conquer death? George Bernard Shaw said, death is the ultimate statistic, one out of one person's die. You can eat healthy, you can exercise, you can do whatever you want, but death is coming. Sir Walter Scott said, come he slow or come he fast, it is but death that comes at last. All of us are going to die. What are you doing to conquer death? How do you intend to conquer it? The reality is, the truth is, the gospel is the only way to free yourself from death's terrors is by siding with the one who conquered death, who wrestled down death, and he came up in triumph. You side with him, you're good. You try to side by yourself. You know what? I'll make it. I'll be okay. Then you will die, not just once, but twice. In this life physically and in the next life spiritually. You might say, well, but it's hard to believe. I didn't see this personally. I'm not an eyewitness to this. How can I believe what I have not seen? Well, John, Peter... Paul's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people saw the risen Christ. In the Old Testament, the laws of evidence state that on the basis of two or three witnesses, something would be confirmed. If it's just one person saying, I saw him, trust me, take my word, I'd say, no, you could be making things up. But Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, the other disciples, 500 followers, let them be our witnesses. Yes, I have not seen the risen Christ. But let them be the witnesses for us. We do this all the time. Your best friend goes and sees a movie. And they tell you it was amazing. And you say, oh, I can't wait to see it. I've heard there's like really cool plot twists in it. And I don't really get it. Can you explain like how this movie fits in the whole trilogy of all the other things? And they start explaining, well, this happened here. And remember when this one, this, oh, okay. Wait, but what? You're trying to wrap your mind around it. And then all of a sudden you get it. The plot makes sense. 
and you say, oh, I see. What just happened? You haven't seen that movie, but you can say, oh, I see. I see. How? Because a witness has become for you a window. Let John and Peter's witness become for you today your window. Do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? If not, why not? Can I just ask, just honestly assess, why don't you believe that? John saw enough evidence to say, there's no, way, there's no other way to explain this. He's alive. Some people would call us fools, and the irony of today, Easter Sunday, April Fool's Day, based on the evidence, you'd be a fool not to believe in the resurrection. You'd have to make up a lot of crazy stories, like pay the guards off. While I was sleeping, this is what happened, and I know everything that happened while I was sleeping. I don't know how, but I know. You would be no fool this April Fool's Day, this Resurrection Sunday, to follow the evidence. God's not asking you to believe with blind faith. There is no such thing as blind faith in biblical Christianity. God is asking you, follow the, the lines of evidence, and that's, you're going to get to a place at the end. Yes, you have to believe what you haven't seen. But you can believe that which you can comprehend through the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming. You and I do this with things historically all the time. I believe that Julius Caesar was an actual real-life historical figure. I believe that Abraham Lincoln was an actual real-life historical figure, and I've never seen him, never had a conversation with him. I follow the lines of evidence that have been passed down to me. We have more in the Bible and even outside the Bible. We have more historical, extra-biblical, outside-the-Bible documentation that would prove that Jesus is a true historical figure who died on a cross and rose from the dead than we do about Julius Caesar's life and death. If you believe Julius Caesar, you have more than enough evidence to believe that Jesus is true. So, John gives us the reason for Easter, an indisputable, verifiable death. He gives us the reality of Easter, an indisputable, verifiable bodily resurrection. And he gives us our response to Easter, an intelligent and transformational belief. Follow the evidence and let it transform you. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus is alive. One of my favorite quotes just takes my mind back to the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The author says this, part of the curse that Jesus would bear for us on Golgotha was the taunting and testing by God's enemies. We talked about the curse on Good Friday. As he drowned in his own blood, the spectators yelled words quite similar to those of Satan in the desert. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and we may believe. But Jesus didn't jump down. He didn't ascend to the skies. He just writhed there. And after it all, the bloated corpse of Jesus hit the ground as he was pulled off of the cross, spattering warm blood and water on the faces of the crowd. That night, the religious leaders probably read Deuteronomy 21 to their families, warning them about how the curse of God is on those who are hanged on a tree. Fathers probably told their sons, watch out that you don't ever wind up like him. The Roman soldiers probably went home and washed the blood of Jesus 
from under their fingernails and played with their children in front of the fire before dozing off. This was just one more insurrectionist that they had pulled off of a cross, one in a line of them dotting the roadside. What was his name again? Joshua? He's just decaying meat now. No threat to the empire at all. The corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silences of that cave. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you'd been there to pull open his bruised eyelids, matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank holes. If you had lifted his arm, you would have felt no resistance. You would have only heard a thud as it hit the table when you let it go. You would have walked away from that morbid scene muttering to yourself, truly the wages of sin is death. But sometime before dawn, on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened. And the breath of God came blowing into that cave. And a new creation flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus and with him all of us from death. He was also vindicating Jesus and with Jesus all of us as well. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was reaffirming what he had said over the Jordan waters, declaring Jesus to be the Son of God in power. Jesus died, he was buried, and he's alive. What must that have felt like? Picture being Mary, going to the tomb, seeing the, the stone's been rolled away, and in utter despair, but a little bit of hope, but sadness, and just what's happened? Then running to speak to your friends, and you see their expression bewilderment, confusion. What's going on? They run away to the tomb, leaving you all alone, and you're just numb. You go back to the tomb. You see John. You see Peter. They say, he's alive, and you can't fully wrap your mind around it. And they run away, and you're left alone again, just to weep again. The angels speak to her, but she still weeps. She just cannot wrap her mind around what's happened. And then she sees a man and she says, can you tell me if you've taken his body away, where is he? And he calls her by name, Mary. And she hears, my Lord. She's going to cling to him. We'll look at this next week. She's going to cling. He's going to say, don't, don't cling to me. I'm going to ascend. But go tell his disciples. What excitement. What joy. What celebration. What hope. To run back and tell your friends. Oh, he's alive. And here's how I know. I've just seen Jesus. Jesus.